to begin by reading from 1 Thessalonians 5.19. My mom had us memorize this scripture as children. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. This is a provocative scripture because in commanding us not to quench the Spirit, he is implying that we have the capacity to quench the Spirit. Otherwise, the command is meaningless. And then he makes this statement, do not despise prophetic utterance. And we're left going, what would ever make anyone despise a prophetic utterance? This word quench is spanimi in the Greek. And it means to extinguish, to quench, to dampen, to hinder, and to thwart. The word became alive for me when I looked at it in the affirmative. How many of you are familiar with Ephesians 6? Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Names all the elements of armor. Verse 16, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish spanimi, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, don't quench the spirit. Ephesians 6.16 says, take up faith and stop, quench the fiery darts of the devil. The fiery darts of the devil are accusations, darts of lies, and any other thing that comes from him. But you could read, taking up the shield of unbelief, you will be able to extinguish all the fiery promises and pricks of the Word of God. The Amplified says, Do not spurn the gifts and utterances of prophets. Do not depreciate prophetic revelations, nor despise inspired instruction or exhortation or warning. There are more, there's more than one kind of prophecy. There is foretelling prophecy, tells of the future. There is forthtelling prophecy, reveals what is. There, is. there is instructive prophecy, such as Ezra and Nehemiah had for the building of the temple. This is what ought to be done. There's more than one kind of prophecy. But the Amplified really does render it best in this. It says, do not despise or spurn prophetic revelations or inspired instruction, exhortation, or warning. How are we built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone? Paul said, I, a wise master builder, have laid a foundation. But two times to the Corinthians he said, the authority God has given me is not for tearing you down, but for building you up, telling us that the authority in the church builds the church. This is what Ephesians 4 says when it says we, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, but God ascended on high and gave gifts unto men. What were those gifts? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the word in Greek, oikodomia, means to build a house. Oikonomia means the order of the house. Oikodomia means to build the house. So God ascended and he gave gifts. And those gifts were the five-fold ministry. And he builds his church through that right hand of power. Because in Matthew he said, who do men say that I am? And he said, 
Some say this and some say that. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, thou art Mashiach, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's not contradicting that, Paul, when he says in Ephesians 4, he gave these gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. He's saying that they just represent God's hand at work. It's Christ who builds the church. As the writer of Hebrews says, the builder and maker is God. So now I want to focus on this word despise. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it's exothenia. Can everybody say exothenia? Maybe you'll remember it, maybe not. It means, so he says, do not despise prophetic utterance. Prophetic utterance is part of what builds. Do you want the church to stay where you are, where it is right now? Would you be content if we never move forward in the things of God beyond where we already have progressed? Do you have a yearning to go all the way? Do you want to see this house completed? Do you want to be part of those who bring back the capstone with shouts of grace to it, grace to it? We're not done. The blueprint has been given. The foundation has been laid. The plans and patterns have been handed down. But it still needs to be built. And that building team is not the only team of ministry. It merely equips the saints so that they do the work of the ministry, as we've talked about there in Ephesians 4. Amen? And that building team of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers do, is there an order in that team? 1 Corinthians 12, what does it say? First apostles, second prophets. He gives a linear order. You rearrange that and things are not going to happen the way they should. How many brothers in this room tonight have uh, vocation or extensive experience in construction of some kind or another? Please raise your hand high. I want to see it. Are you in construction of some kind or another? Thank you. What happens if I go and say, uh, the project manager is now going to submit to the foreman? And the, um, the architect is going to uh, schedule all the subs. What happens if I go and just scramble the order of a project? Brother Brian, Brother Jonathan, Brother Jez, any number, Brother Willie, any number of the others here, you tell me what happens to that project if the order of authority gets scrambled. Brother Brian says you have confusion and disasters. It almost sounds like he has experience. We all know how upsetting it is when we feel like we have a place and somebody is, doesn't, isn't aware of it. Sometimes we don't realize how upsetting we are when we're doing the same thing to others. But there is an order to this body. And if you don't understand that and you're in a place of leadership, you are grossly irresponsible. You need to ask, study, and delve into the truth of God until it becomes vividly clear what your place in this order is. Amen. What did Jude say when he was warning the people about the, the snare that, that the angels and Satan had fallen into. He says, And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of their authority given by God, but left their place, the place where they belonged, and God have, has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness waiting for the great day of judgment. In rebuking people who were becoming insubordinate, Jude says you're being like the angels who left the proper abode, the proper extents and limits of their place, the place where they belonged. They transgressed the limits of their authority and they have been in chains and prisons of darkness ever since waiting for the great day of judgment. And is that not the the nature of the devil, of Satan. 
Does the Bible not teach us that he is, that he was initially Lucifer, the son of light, son of the morning star, that he was second in beauty and wisdom and greatness only to God? Hmm? And that he could not content himself with his place, and so he usurped the place of God or attempted to do so, and in doing so, plummeted into these chains of darkness, this blackest darkness. In 1 Timothy 3, 7, Paul says, don't make a novice a leader, or else he will be lifted up in pride and fall into the snare of the, the devil. The devil's snare is a specific one, and it's tied to the novice who gets lifted up in pride. People who don't recognize the, their place and its limits are inclined toward that transgression spirit. That is the same spirit that David spoke of. Another scripture my mom made me memorize. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be innocent and blameless of great transgression. Presumptuous sin is that presuming into a role or a place that God has not given you. And when that happens, can the body be built? Or is the, the process of construction frustrated by our disobedience? That's what needs to stop. The hour is late and the time is short and the needs are great. We have to be past all the frustration. We need to get to the place of unity and harmony and coordination. That means with ordination. So that this temple, or at least our section of it, may be completed to the glory of God. So we cannot despise these spirit-inspired directions, prophetic utterances, because if we do, there's nothing that builds the church. There's nothing that takes us from where we are to where we long to be in God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And the church is supposed to be the pillar and ground and support of the truth. And apostles and prophets specifically are supposed to bring that direction and those blueprints. And pastors are supposed to apply and implement what has been given by apostles and prophets. And teachers are supposed to explain and inform what has been given by apostles and prophets. And evangelists are supposed to appeal, reaching furthest into the world, to all those who long for the appearing of the Lord in his body and in his great return. Amen. So we have to have coordination, and we cannot learn to despise prophetic utterance because without it, there's no building up of the church. Paul said, when I come, must I use my authority to rebuke you? He said, I do not, God has not given me this authority to hurt you, to tear you down, but to build you up. But he was willing to tear it down if he had to. That's the call to the prototypical prophet, Jeremiah. What did the Lord say to him? Behold, I have called you and appointed you over the nations. To what? To pluck up. To tear down. To uproot and destroy. And to plant and to build. Amen. Paul doesn't want to use his authority to tear anything down, but he's going to tear down whatever has to be torn down because he wants to plant and to build. He wants to see that church rise up. In every sphere, whether it be a marriage, a family, a vocation, a job, an area of responsibility within the body, a group fellowship, a cell group fellowship, in every sphere, there's a section of the wall that we are called to build. And either the coordination is frustrated 
or the coordination is harmonizing and unified and building up the body of Christ in love. So that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of deceitful men in their deceitful scheming. But what is the antidote to this waffling, wavering, wobbling between two opinions? But speaking the truth in love, we grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. So I return to this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, knowing now what this building is for. Right, Abraham? And I ask, why does he use the word despise? This word is exothenia. And I've already read it means to hold light, to make light of, to set at naught, to despise, to treat with contempt or scorn, to neglect, to disregard, to treat contemptibly, to view as if it were of small account, to reject with contempt, to hold in contempt, to look down on, to ridicule, to make of no account. So this word despise means to make of small account, to make of no account, to make light of. That's all we have to do when God is gracious enough to give us direction for the house that must be built. All we have to do is neglect it, make light of it, treat it as if it were of small account, and it stops. You know, when you're a builder running a project, I imagine you're a project manager or serve in that capacity often, when you're a project manager and you give instructions to the foremen or to the subs and, and, and they don't do it, you're puzzled because you know that they have a compelling interest in that project. And that compelling interest is what? It's money. And so you're baffled because they're going against their interest. When you say, I need you to complete this by this time and it doesn't happen, you're confused. What's going on here? But if you take away that compelling interest, it's a lot harder to maintain that coordination. Now, when it comes to building the body of Christ, we don't have the compelling interest of money. So we had better have some other compelling interest that is more powerful than that. Because if we don't, it's not going to happen. It's going to feel like pulling teeth. Amen. You just imagine trying to get a job done and feeling the obligation from the owner and the business owner and look, having them look into you and trusting you that this is the man. We're going to go ahead and nominate Brian to run this project. He's our best project manager. And you feel the weight of that responsibility. That is exactly how I feel. I feel like God has put me in a place where I am obliged, I am trusted, I am required to get something done. And I feel that pressure. It's what keeps me awake at night. It's what brings me to this meeting tonight. I feel that pressure. I feel that obligation. But my compelling interest is not money. My compelling interest is to give Jesus the reward of his sacrifice and to give the world the expression of the temple and the body of Christ that they so desperately need. My compelling interest is the longing to see this house complete and the presence and the glory that the Lord says will dwell in this house when it is built exactly according to pattern. Solomon didn't get money by building the temple, but he got glory. He did not, not glory for himself, but he tasted of the glory of God when he knelt down and spread out his hands and said, oh God, that's my compelling interest, a thirst for his presence a craving for his glory, a compulsion for his witness. I want to be in that number shouting grace to it, grace to it, when the capstone comes back. Do not despise prophetic utterance, exothenia. Again, 
let's look at another scripture to shed light on this word despise. In 1 Corinthians 4, you'll remember that Paul was rebuking the church for suing each other. And he says, do you not know that you're going to judge the angels? Why would you take each other to court? In verse 4 of chapter 6, he says, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? He says, why are you getting worldly judges to settle church disputes? Because he said, those judges are of no account in the church. Can everybody say no account? Those three words are the word in Greek, exothenia. So when he says, do not despise prophetic utterance, he's saying, do not make prophetic utterance of no account in your life. He thinks that a worldly judge has no prerogative. He has no account in the church. But he's worried that the prophetic utterance is going to be treated in the same way. Why do we despise the word? That is a strong word. It can also be a neglect, but let's just take it for its most common English translation. What would ever make anyone despise prophetic utterance? Anybody? Yes, sir. I just think about Jesus going to Nazareth and the attitude they had toward him. It's like we, we can look back and say, well, I would honor Isaiah or I would honor Jeremiah, but my brother, yeah, that's just so-and-so. When Jesus went to Nazareth, they were initially enamored with him, weren't they? What made them shift? What made them change? They started in the meeting saying, this guy has gracious words. I've never heard anything like this. And how did they end the meeting? Gnashing their teeth and pushing him toward a cliff. What changed? The pivot that I can see is when he brings the abstract scriptures as food for intellectual contemplation out of the abstract, and he brings it, bang, right into the moment of that day. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If he had pontificated on that passage as a figment for abstraction, for abstract contemplation, do you think that they would have pushed him toward the cliff? But when he says, today, it's fulfilled in your hearing, he brings an authority into the room, doesn't he? So we can almost deduce from that that what makes people reject it is the authority of God. For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you will gladly welcome them. I have come, in, come to you in my Father's name, why did they reject him for coming in his father's name? What's another way of phrasing that sentence? He could have said, if I came with the opinion of a man, you'd welcome me to the Mars Hill discussion. But because I came and said it was God's will, you have rejected me. So what makes someone despise prophetic utterance? What makes someone despise instruction for building up the church? It's an affront to their authority, their perceived autonomy. We are open to endless ideas that compete like equal players for our acceptance. But independence, rooted in self-authority, hates a word that is not subject to man's approval nor reliant on human rationalization. Amen. And yet... He upholds all things by the word of his power, and the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. If all that is left in the church are opinions, natural talents, and rational conclusions, the house of the church has been left desolate. For Jesus said in Matthew 23, 38, Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The only thing that fills the house is the presence, the appearance, the visitation of God. Amen. And when that's gone, 
The house is empty to the point of desolation until we can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Can you think of any examples in Scripture where the word or the prophet was despised in accordance with 1 Thessalonians 5.19? Do not despise prophetic utterance. Can you think of any times in Scripture where prophetic utterance was despised? Elijah in 1 Kings 19.10 says, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of Israel, for, but the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and now they seek to take my life. Why did they hate Jeremiah? Why did they make him feel completely alone? Because the authority he represented played havoc with their illusions of independence. And there is an unspoken illusion of independence that worries at the back of every human heart. This little whispered lie started in the garden that you can have this apart from the coordination, apart from the order of God. You can have this your way. Every step forward that would attempt to build the body of Christ and the temple, it is going to run afoul with that little autonomy, that little illusion of independence that is lurking in the back. And that independence is going to wear a thousand masks, assume a thousand different tones of voice, explanations, rationalizations. It will reach for scriptures. It will do anything and everything because it hates the authority of God. If somebody comes in their own name, that's an opinion. Bring it on. We'll flatter each other. But if somebody comes and says, thus saith the Lord, bug out. How many of you remember the story of Ahab and Jehoshaphat when they were about to go to war? And how Jehoshaphat asked for some prophetic counsel. This guy doesn't really want to put his own life at risk along with the life of his entire army and the survival of his nation without hearing from God. And so he asks for prophetic counsel. And lo and behold, Ahab has a whole cabinet full of confirmers. And they file out one after another and say, go up, go up, Yahweh has delivered this enemy into your hands. Now what scripture does that make you think of? Ahab's little coterie of confirmers. What, what does that make you think of? Does it make you think of 2 Timothy 4 where Paul says this? The time is coming when people will not tolerate sound and wholesome instruction, but having ears itching for something pleasing and gratifying, they will gather to themselves one teacher after another to a considerable number chosen to satisfy their own likings and to foster the errors they hold. The Bible says, the Lord says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. And the Lord says, I will come to you. And through Paul, it says, when he, that is Christ, ascended, he, that is Christ, gave gifts unto men. So there's one way of receiving confirmation that realizes that this covering comes to me from God. This is God's will, God's given, God's gift in my life. And there's another where we choose it for ourselves, And we say, I'm going to heap to myself those who confirm, who satisfy my own likings and foster the errors I have already chosen. So Ahab had this little coterie. He had learned the ministers to avoid and those to hang out with. He had learned how to be selective because when he got around one guy, it always chafed against his autonomy and his independence. But when he got around the other, they resonated. Those other prophets resonated. Do you remember? It played on the banjo of his pride and he liked the tune. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat says, is there no one else? <laughs> now I ask you why when all those prophets of Ahab came out and talked, why did Jehoshaphat ask for somebody else? 
there was nothing playing on the violin of his spiritual man. He like, remember the guy got little horns and see these, you're going to gut the enemy. I mean, he was, he was theatrical. Jehoshaphat was unimpressed. I've, I'm, I'm accustomed to this riffraff. Is there anybody else? Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, son of Ilma. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king speak this way. Do not despise prophetic utterance. You despise prophetic utterance when it does not align with your preconceptions, when it does not comport with your plans, when it does not spread out the blueprint you have in mind and the plans you've set for yourself. And you want people to do that for you. Amen. So you go and you listen and you hear what you want to hear. And you turn your ear off to everything else. Psalms 50 and 17, the Lord says, You hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. Ugh, I hate this. Do not despise inspired instruction. Proverbs 13 and 13 says, The one who despises the word will be in debt to it. But the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. You can hate the word. You can marginalize it. You can consider it of no account. You can mock it. You can make a joke about it with your buddies. But you will be in debt to it. Matthew 10, 14, Jesus says, Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Don't let anything from that spirit cling to you. Even the dust you gathered from their house and their streets, shake it off of you because that dust will eat away and corrode at your faith. Have nothing to do with it. Jesus in Matthew 23, 34 says, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Jesus said, I'm sending you prophets, wise people, and scribes, writers. And some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of, of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is what he, where he says it. Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You stone prophetic utterance because you're unwilling. You don't like to contemplate the price. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, there are two kingdoms in this world. One has, the, has man as God. And through the wisdom of man and the science of man and the power and intimidation and brute force of man, Amen. They claim that man is God. That's the Antichrist. But who actually is God is the one who holds the power of death that man is using, the devil, who holds all these who think they're becoming God's bondage through the fear of death all their lifetime. When he said to Eve, you will not surely die, but God knows when you eat of it, you're going to be like God. What he really meant is God knows when you eat of it, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be terrified, shivering behind fig leaves and lies. Vulnerable, exposed, pitiful, helpless. You won't have gone closer toward the empowerment of the sons of God. You will have regressed thousands of years. It will take many millennia to get you back to that place. But in the church, we also have an order 
a coordination. But we only have one king. We don't have political parties. We don't have left and right. Amen. These over here are not the Democrats, and these over here are not the conservatives. We don't have spiritually minded and practically minded. And we don't try to balance out these two. We only have spiritually minded. In the words of Paul, now our Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is jubilee. There is liberty. The year of the Lord's favor, which is to say there is grace. That's what favor is. Amen? I recently heard a comment that, to be completely honest, I think I've listened to many times, and it, to my own shame, I've even admitted or copped to this logic from time to time. I want to run it by you and see what you think about it. You don't have to say, but in your heart, if you have had the same notion, go ahead and admit it to yourself and to the Lord so that you can hear the rest of what I believe the Lord wants to speak to us. Have you ever heard something along the lines of this? Well, now, this brother has great visionary gifts, but it needs to be balanced out with these practical gifts. See, I'm not requiring anybody to nod your head, but I'm going to. I've heard it a lot. Is that true, that practicality balances out vision? Is that biblical? Spiritual visionary gifts must be balanced out by practical gifts. Do you mind if we just test drive this notion a little bit on Jesus? Jesus comes to the pool of Siloam, and a man is there who is paralyzed. And he has been paralyzed for 40 years. Do you follow me? And Jesus comes up to him and says, Arise, take up your mat, and walk. What would the practical gifts say at that point? Lord, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt, but this man can't walk. So, sir, I think what Jesus is meaning is that there are crutches available to you. Do I believe that God would equip the church with gifts for solving practical problems? Absolutely. But it never ever better be a conflict between spiritual guidance and practicality. Those gifts that God would give to the church must themselves be rooted in the Spirit. That's what a diaconate is for. A diaconate is not to replace the apostles, but to extend their reach. So the apostles say, we are giving too much time to things that other people can do on our behalf. So we're going to focus more on this church of tens of thousands, and we want you to show us the men whom we can appoint to take care of these matters. It wasn't you know, all we have here is spiritual thoughts and we need some practical ones. That's not the reason at all. The reason we needed deacons is to extend the reach of the apostles, not to limit it. And what was the qualifications for a deacon? That he be able to resist the apostles and prophets when they say things that are silly, like take up your mat and walk. You say, oh, only Jesus did that. You're right, that you're right. John and Peter never went through the gate beautiful and found there a man who was as incapacitated as the man Jesus met. And they never told him to do something that was flatly impossible, did they? The question is not practical or spiritual. Yes, there are balancing gifts, but they all must be rooted in the Spirit. The anointing is what has to be in common. So what were the qualifications for a deacon? 
first qualification, choose from among yourselves men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, the wisdom of God. Amen. Not men who come with their natural viewpoint to, make, to, to, to bring stillbirth to the promise and purpose of God. I believe that Moses had to have some mighty gifts of organization to lead, a to lead a million plus slaves out of Egypt into a wilderness and not have serious problems. But I don't believe he was submitting to practicality when the Spirit of God prompted him to march toward a Red Sea. What would the practical gifts have said then? I'm telling you, they would have pro protested and squawked like so many plucked chickens. Why are we going toward the Red Sea? There's a highway through the land of the Philistines. We've already sent a delegation to see if we can travel. They said, yes, Moses, you're crazy. You're making this take longer than it needs to. You're putting the people in unnecessary risk. Come on, man. Jesus, bring your word. Peter and Paul, bring your direction. But just submit it to the given limitations of this man's paralysis. Just operate within the givens and the limitations of this man's paralysis. And we'll have you too because we're, we're magnanimous. We want both. We want to hear from both sides and we'll humor one and obey the other. What happens to the Word of God if we submit it to practicality? Ta-da! We have the American church. That's what we've got. We've got this little nod to Jesus. But who runs the day? Practicality, natural-mindedness. We do the little obviously and so therefore dilemma, don't we? I want to ask you, can spiritual phenomena bend natural predictabilities? Can spiritual phenomena bend or alter natural predictabilities? Can you think of any examples beyond those that I've given? What about Hezekiah, King Hezekiah? When the sun went back ten paces to tell the man God was going to do what he initially said he wasn't going to do, he was going to save his life. You see, we're either going to be slaves of the natural and then we're going to make profits out of the most naturally minded. Or we're going to be servants of the living God. And we're going to know our God and do exploits. When we first moved to this land, and my dad said he felt like we needed to have a fair that year, do you believe that he might have gotten a little bit of pushback because of real and present practicalities? I tell you right now, he did. But were there any tools in the practical boxes to anticipate the Branch Davidian debacle that was coming? Practicality cannot anticipate it. We don't have tools in everyday life to anticipate such things. Empiricism doesn't allow for such things. Science doesn't account for such things. But God does, and he led us right for the fair, for the, the cafe, the construction of the cafe on time. Amen. You see, all it would have taken is a little bit of resistance, a little bit of rebellion, a little bit of independence and resentment masquerading as balance. And then when the Branch Davidians wiped us out, then they would have been able to point and say, see, God wasn't leading us to start a community in Texas. Little sabotage, little unbelief. Just put up that shield of unbelief, and with it you will be able to quench all the fiery promises of God's Word. See, watch this. Had a practice... Were the practicalities, were the predictable realities of the natural phenomenon, were they bent a little bit by Gideon? Tell me a story in the Bible where they weren't, where something didn't happen 
that you just could not account for or calculate if reasoning only from what was possible. And when people took God's promise and fed it into the practicality computer, what they got out was a receipt for disaster. That was Abraham's mistakes. You either know the voice of God and you know when God is speaking or you don't. If you do, you're going to know your God and you're going to be part of a people and a kingdom that does exploits, does incredible, unheard of things. If you don't, you're going to resort back to the things you do know, which is the flesh, the natural-minded. A very highly esteemed litigator, businessman, former campaign manager for a presidential campaign was in the Christmas program this last year. I've had occasion to make his acquaintance and spend considerable time with him since. But at the Christmas program, the scientist that he is, <laughs> he's not a scientist, but the naturally minded guy that he is, he was awestruck because, and I might not get the figures exactly right, but he said something like this. He said, I happen to know that only about 8% of people in the population have a significant musical gift. But he said, I'm sitting here in a congregation of a thousand seeing more than 200 and something people up there exhibiting a phenomenal musical gift. He said, this is mathematically impossible unless, I say, the Spirit of God has bent and altered what was mathematically predictable according to practicalities. It was mathematically impossible, not just for people to cross the Red Sea, but for a million slaves to become the great nation of Israel. It was impossible for an exiled, dispersed, forgotten people to return after 1,800 years. It's never been done before in human history and, be, and give birth to the nation of Israel in its modern iteration. These were all impossible. It was impossible for 120 to pull up roots from New Jersey and move across to Grand Junction. I can almost hear the practical speaking. Brother Blair, we just really want to make room for the vision you're feeling here and accept it. But obviously we can't do that. And so therefore we conclude that God must be suggesting that he really wants us to move forward here in, in New Jersey, but just in a spiritual sense. It's a cop-out. And some will say, but I have heard people make prognostications that didn't come true. I have seen people give direction that was flawed. Is that possible? Of course it is. Of course it is. Deuteronomy 18.20 tells you exactly what to do in that scenario. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet will die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has, spo has spoken presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So he tells you right there, it's possible for people to act presumptuously. Do not be afraid of them, because you will know them by their fruits, Jesus said. Same thing Moses was saying. You're going to be able to call it. He didn't say you'll be confused. He didn't say you'll have to hedge your bets because it's too dangerous. He said you will know. Jesus did. And he also took it further and he said, My sheep hear my voice and the voice of a stranger they will not follow. You know in your heart from the get-go, you who have the Holy Spirit, what the voice of God sounds like. So you won't be led astray. And if somebody gets it wrong, well then give up on that prophet. But don't give up on prophecy. Give up on that presumptuous man, but how dare you call into question the inspired direction that would lead and build the church. Micaiah said to Ahab and Jehoshaphat, if you return safely, Yahweh has not spoken through me, but take heed. 
Micaiah said, I'm the first to admit, if this doesn't happen like I've said it's going to happen, then God has not spoken through me. That's how we can know. Jeremiah, he says, as for the prophet who prophesies peace, only if the word of the prophet comes true will the prophet be recognized as the one Yahweh has truly sent. The next chapter it says, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamt. People can say things that are not true. They can even come up with dreams. They can cause themselves to dream things that align with their attitudes. But you're going to know it if you're a sheep and you know the sound of his voice, and you're going to know it if it comes true or doesn't come true. But you don't say, oh, now we need to balance this out with the natural. No, we need spiritual truths discerned with spiritual thoughts. And we need spiritual prophets, and we need spiritual deacons, and we need spiritual men who are gifted in practical matters, but who do those practical matters with a spiritual conviction and faith. We cannot attempt to start balancing out the spirit because in doing so, we will make the flesh Lord, and there will be no liberty. There will be no jubilee. The question is, do you know the voice of God? Do you know the voice of a shepherd? Do you distrust yourself more than your flesh, more than anything else in your life? If you do, you will not be led astray, because Jesus promised you wouldn't. He said the voice of a stranger, they will not follow. Amen. But if there's too much still on the scales of your own will, you're in trouble. And if you've hybridized the will of God with your own, you're in trouble. Do you choose for yourself or does God choose for you? Do you heap to yourselves, teachers, or does he give the gifts? You see, in a political system, what we need is balance because all sides are inherently untrustworthy. But in the kingdom of God, we do not need balance. Not when it comes to sources. We need one source, and that is the Holy Spirit. Balance in gifts, yes. Balance to make sure that all we're getting is the voice of the Spirit. Not balance to temper the Spirit with a little leaven of the flesh. Do you see the difference? Jesus encountered endless angles of opposition from those outside his circle of trust. What was the sole criticism leading to his betrayal that he encountered from within his team? Judas said this money was not allocated in the best way. And why did he say it? Because his heart was just wrenched for the poor? No. That's not why. He said it because Satan had entered his heart. John 13, 27 said, After the morsels, Satan then entered Judas's heart. Luke 22, 3, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. What is this word, Satan? What does it mean? I can't hear you. Accuser, adversarial accuser, opposing accuser would be the best rendering I could give to the word. It comes from the Aramaic and Hebrew. We have it in the Greek, satanas, and we have it in English. Oppositional accuser. He is called the accuser of the brethren. So let's just trade out the word, which is a proper noun, and let's just slip in that meaning and make that same statement about Judas. And accusation entered his heart. It's the same phrase that is used about Ananias. How is it that accusation entered your heart? And what was Ananias' beef about? the handling of money. Because money is a medium of power. So if you're independent, 
you're not going to want to yield that medium for power. I'm the first to admit God gives money for you to be faithful with it, but it's His. It belongs to Him, and you're responsible. But the reason people get so alert, the reason it provoked the first two Judases in the Bible is because it is a medium for power and the independent know they're losing ground. An accuser, accusation. How did Jude put it? They are fault finders. Not fault searchers, fault finders. Judas had a criticism of Jesus and I want to ask you, was his betrayal rooted in that criticism or was that, a, that criticism merely a superficial justification in Judas's life? We can't know intimately, can we? But we know we have little indications. We know that the reason he said that about the alabaster jar is because he was gleaning from it. There was a selfishness involved. So he didn't really have some burden for the way the money was being handled. But he saw something he could exploit. He saw a weakness, what he perceived to be a shortcoming on the part of Christ that he could make hay out of. What he really didn't like was the authority. He didn't want to trust he didn't want to submit. He didn't like that this guy whom he had gotten behind as his future, as his answer, as his champion, as his captain, as his lion of Judah, he didn't like that he was willingly marching toward a cross. Peter didn't like it either. They were both called Satan. Satan played with both of their hearts, didn't he? through what the mechanism he controls all people by, the fear of death. Amen. And he used the handling of money as a hot-button issue to gain some leverage over the Lord. It, it didn't work. So do you think it's possible that Satan could ever enter our hearts? Do you think it's possible that the accuser of the brethren would ever tempt me would ever start to resonate with that backwards banjo of my old carnal nature? I'm telling you before God, it's possible. It's more than possible, it's inevitable. Offenses will come. Hallelujah. That's what happened to Elemus, isn't it? Thank you, Jesus. The love of money is the root of all evil because money is a medium of power. We don't want to let go of that illusion that we bit into in the garden. We don't want to trust God with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Amen. Oh, I'll trust God, me and God, but I don't want to trust anybody else. This Peter, I'm going to give him a little something, but I don't trust him. Rebellion goes like this. What you're saying this new direction, this new step, it doesn't resonate with my carnal banjo. And so I'm just going to stonewall you, or I'm just going to slow walk you. I'm just going to sabotage by attrition what God is saying. And I'm going to hide my sabotage behind the label of balance. I just want things to be balanced. There's only one balance, and that's the Holy Spirit. Bring me the practical gifts. We need them. Bring me the gifts of miracles. We need them. The words of knowledge. We need them. Of comfort, of encouragement. The gifts of helps, of administrations. We need them. But we need them full of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God. And the same Spirit is going to speak the same message to all of us. But don't hide independence behind a mask of balance. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps his mouth shut. Most people say, Okay, well then keep your mouth shut so that people can mistake you as wise. Well, I suppose that's true, but I hear it a different way. 
I hear that God can speak something to us. A direction can be given to us. And if we shut our mouths, we can keep our secret criticisms, our little judgments, our our despising mockery or of no account approach, we can keep that submerged. Everybody will think we're wise. It's the body of Christ. Let one prophesy and the rest judge. If somebody says something that's wrong, you owe it to God and to his people to make it right, to say something, to speak up. You say, well, I'm sure enough that it's wrong that I'm not going to do it, but not sure enough that it's wrong that I'm going to speak up. Well, ain't that convenient? Ain't that convenient? If you were living for the honor of God and the love of his people, you would have to speak up. We need to be in or out, gathering with or scattering abroad. But there's no neutral ground. I feel it, and I know some of you feel it, and I know countless others who don't even know about us, they feel it. There is a sense in the air, there is a change in these times that tells us we had better get with the program. We are not ahead of schedule. We are behind schedule. What we need is the voice of God. We need direction. And if somebody brings something that is not true, well, call it out. Have the courage for the sake of Jesus to call it out. Be one of the rest who judges, but not in the insolent, insulated pride of your heart where you can be thought wise even though you never said a word. Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side, come over here and join me. And the Levites gathered around them, gathered around him. And he said, Strap on a sword, each one of you, and go through the camp and slay your brother, your father, your mother's son. And the judgment was lifted. Elijah stood before the people and said, How long will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people kept silent. Silence is an oft-repeated stance for the rebellious. Jesus said the, the ministry of John, was it of man or of God? And the Pharisees said, if we say it was of man, he'll say, why didn't you listen? And if we say it was of God, if we say it was of God, he'll say, why didn't you listen? If we say it was of man, the people will stone us. So the Pharisees finally replied, we don't know. That's a lie. You know if your heart burns within you. That's a lie. You know if God has sent ministry that has fruit to show for its claims. You know it. You just want to play the nice guy and hedge your bets and say we're not sure. Get on board or get out of the way. And Jesus replied, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We're not supposed to be children wobbling and wavering and yes and no and yes and no. All the promises of God in Christ are yes and in him they are amen. So I want to present you with a challenge. And I know sometimes when God lets his conviction come upon us like he is tonight, we don't know what to do. We are not exactly sure what to do. And if you don't know what to do, you better not do nothing. You better pray. You better do something to take a step toward the will of God. But the day is already on us when we have got to be completely united. Nobody is presenting anybody else as being perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm not above mistakes. Amen. But this isn't about me, and it's not about you. It's about the promise and purpose of God. Hallelujah. And I am not going to wait around for the slow walkers. I am not going to tarry for the unbelieving. When the Lord says cross over, we're crossing over, and the rest of you can stay in Egypt. Amen. We're going all the way. And if that scares you, it just shows you that your phony independence is still on the throne. Thank you, Jesus. And you need to take it to the halter and crucify it there. Amen. If you've got something from God, you can be heard. It doesn't matter if you're great or small. 
It doesn't matter if you're a burning bush, you will be hurt. People will turn aside to look. You with the practical skills, we need you now more than ever, but we need you in the spirit. You with the visionary gifts, we need you more than ever. You with the gifts of helps and administration, we need you. But don't make the mistake of thinking this is a conflict between the visionary and spiritual and the practical. This is a conflict between the flesh and the spirit, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. This is a conflict between what man says is impossible and what God says we should do. Get on board. The whole universe will adjust when you make up your mind to do God's will. It says, he says to, to Daniel, from the moment you made up your mind to seek the Lord, the angel was working towards you. Amen. The double-minded will receive nothing from the Lord. Don't hide behind, oh, yes, I accept that. It just needs balancing out. You just call it. You think someone has brought you a false prophecy? You call it what it is. And you say, I don't have to be afraid of that anymore. But if somebody has brought you the word of God and you know it, and it's borne fruit in your life, amen, then you had better walk in the fear of God before you despise prophetic utterance because you just might be quenching the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs>